Welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show with events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the 544th show of ROI, and our guest for today is Dr. Timothy Stinson, Associate Professor of English and University Faculty Scholar at North Carolina State University, and we're going to be talking about teaching Chaucer. Joining us for the second segment of our show will be a history buff, Rick Sweet. So to begin with, welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We are excited to have you here. Um, I should, in the uh, interest of full disclosure, let you know that I am a uh, 40-year teacher, mostly high school, although I've taught everything from kindergarten to college. Um, And uh, history was my starting point, but literature was sort of a second base. So hopefully I'll know a little bit about uh, what you're talking about, and I'm really excited to see where things are going to go. Thank you. I'm excited too, and uh, glad to have someone with that background on board here. (laughs) Excellent. All right, so our first segment's called Farouk Dinarin. And we really just want to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So start us off with some basic information on who Chaucer is and why he's important. Okay, sure. I think maybe there are two ways to respond to that question. There's sort of Chaucer as we remember him today, the great poet. But I think I'll start first with another Chaucer, which is Chaucer as he was known in the 14th century. And his, his years are probably around 1342 to 1400. That's uh, birth to death. We're not entirely sure about that first date. But Chaucer was a very well-known man around London, uh, around England, and very well connected. He was born in what we would think of as upper middle class family. His father, John Chaucer, was a wine merchant and early on, he appears uh, when in his teen years, as a Chaucer does, uh, uh, appears as a page in the household of the Countess of Ulster. And this was a, a kind of a good gig for a young man to get at the time. Uh, the Countess of Ulster was the wife of Lionel, who was at that time, his father was Edward III was king. And it seems Chaucer had some good sort of solid middle-class connections and made the most of them. He, he appears in records in the military in the context of the Hundred Years' War, which is a, really a long series of conflicts between England and France. He's um, taken captive in 1359. The king ha- helps to pay his ransom. He's used as a messenger in peace negotiations. And his career takes off from there, working for uh, the king directly and he becomes a diplomat to Spain, Flanders, Italy, France at various times in his career. And another thing he did very well was he married very well. His wife, Philippa, uh, became, eventually she entered the service of the queen, queen to Edward III. And so we have this, this, this man who seems upwardly mobile, and he gets one appointment after another. He at one point is the comptroller of the Port of London, which is a very important job, sort of maintain what comes in and out of London, a member of parliament, and so forth. So there's Chaucer, the civil servant, diplomat, kind of upwardly mobile 14th century man that is not the Chaucer we usually know today, but that's actually the Chaucer who who history tells us about. If we have a lot of records, most medieval English poets we know 
nothing or next to nothing about them in terms of their life. And we do know quite a lot about Chaucer, but none of that is really about his poetry. So then there's Chaucer, the poet, who is uh, still beloved today, and that's how he's remembered. It's it's funny that his successes in his life really were kind of political and career. Um, he was a successful poet in his day, but he seemed to have a very small audience of other poets and uh, a sort of small courtly audience. Of course, then as now, it's hard to make a living as a poet, so that wasn't his profession. But he did some very important things in in poetry that, that led him to be called, really from within a decade of, of his death, people were starting to call him the father of English poetry. And that's that's a, a name that has stuck. And there are a number of reasons for that. One is English was not a very prestigious language at that time in England, which sounds kind of funny to say, but the, the court, because of this complex historical background, which we can get into later if you'd like. But the court, the king and the, the court was all French, and they tended to speak French, and that was the elite language of court, of literary society, and so forth. Of course, language, uh, Latin is the language of the church, of education, and so forth. And so English kind of comes in third place. And Chaucer is, there's increasingly in the 14th century a desire in a sort of movement towards English taking its place as the primary language. And Chaucer was a big player in that because he showed that, hey, all these things that people can do on the continent in French or Italian poetry, we can do using English. You know, this idea of stanzas that count syllables and have end rhyme. We, he, he did that. The use of things like I am big Tamater. He wrote what seems to be the first sonnet in English occurs in his Crusade. He adopts one from Petrarch. So, um, so there are all these kind of milestones in English poetry that Chaucer uh, was was the author of, and he really elevated the English language as a language for courtly poetry. And so, also he he was just popular. His his poems were popular. The Canterbury Tales were were one of the earliest uh, works of English poetry printed by Caxton. And of course, printing comes to England in the middle of the 15th century, some uh, some decades after Chaucer died. But it has never been out of print. It was one of the first poems printed, and it's never been out of print since then. It's been, it's been wildly influential on subsequent poets. So I'll stop there, and we can, we can follow up on any of those points that interest you. Well, and that's a great place to stop and lays lots of groundwork, just what we wanted. Um, so we're going to talk a lot more about Chaucer. Please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief. Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television. Reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name's Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Timothy Stinson, Associate Professor of English and University Faculty Scholar at North Carolina State University, and we're talking about teaching Chaucer. Our history buffs for today are Rick Sweet. Rick, start us off. Thanks, Jay. Tim, uh, in all due respect, uh, to clarify my position on English literature, I know nothing. Uh, my wife is a 30-year uh, language arts, English uh, teacher. Specialty is Shakespeare, so I had to go to her and have her talk to me about who is Chaucer. Uh, and she mentioned that uh, among many of the first of, of Chaucer was, uh, in her mind, a lot of uh, what he wrote was uh, basically commoner-type stories, more of the, the, the non-royalty, more of the, uh, the uh, native uh, English person. Is, is that fairly correct? That's, that's fairly correct, I would say, of the Canterbury Tales, which is his best-known work. There are his earliest poetry. I think, unsurprisingly, it, works like the 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 Book of the Duchess and things like that are are courtly poems. And his, he he finished in that vein with Troilus and Crusade. But one of the things he does in the Canterbury Tales, which is his best known work, is he he sets up this storytelling competition where there is a group of pilgrims and they're supposedly going on pilgrimage from from London down to Canterbury, where the cathedral is, and they're going to have a competition telling stories. And he puts together this sort of motley crew of <laughs> folks whom you, you wouldn't usually find together, right? You wouldn't usually find a knight and a monk, these sort of upper-class characters, probably traveling with a miller and a plowman and a reeve and that sort of thing. But he does. He throws together this group from all walks of life, and I, I like to think, a lot of people like to think maybe his job, say, controller of ports or his military service, his diverse backgrounds, he probably encountered a lot of people from different professions and different social classes. I think that really shows up in Canterbury Tales. But one thing that really allows him to do is to have a collection of genres that are very different. So you have something like, we kick off with the... The Knight's Tale, this courtly romance, which is upper class, and then the, our host thinks we're going to have this nice progression of tales going in order, a social order, and right away it's rudely interrupted by this miller who we're told is so drunk he's about to fall off his horse, and he tells this scandalous, scatological, sexual tale, <laughs> and we're kind of we're kind of knocked off, and so we're we're suddenly down in the gutter, right, and this kind of low class characters telling things, lower class characters within it. And so that look at the common man side by side with the upper classes is something we get in, in the Canterbury Tales. Okay. Um, Tim, I'd like to kind of follow up on that um, and have you talk, because one of the things that struck me the first time I read this, and I was probably in junior high when I read Canterbury Tales, um, and, and I was struck by how many different um, stories, types of stories, characters, individuals were involved um, and I, I remember thinking, you know, is, is he trying to give us a, a commentary on 
uh, English society? Is is there is there a sociological or political element that goes along with that? Is he just using these folks as an excuse to be able to tell as many different kinds of, of stories and sort of uh, tickle his own fancy? Is he making fun of, you know, is, is there more sarcasm or, or uh, satirical kinds of things? How would you describe what's going on in Canterbury Tales as a, as a larger piece? Well, I like the fact that you, in the way you ask that question, you sort of give a menu of, of possible options. And I, I kind of want to say yes to all of that. <laughs> um, that's, that's really, I think, one of, the, one of the trademarks of Chaucer's genius. I think it's one of the reasons why we can keep having productive conversations about him 600 years later is that his he's refreshingly complex in that he he doesn't have some clear didactic or political goal like i simply mean to criticize society in this you know in this kind of heavy-handed way and point out who's doing wrong there are a lot of writers then and now who do that and most of us don't find that very entertaining and we also find i think among the people we know best, including ourselves, that, you know, humanity is kind of messy. There's this admixture of the, of the admirable and the not so good and the good intentions and bad intentions and good at this, but bad at that. And one thing we see in Chaucer is this really kind of striving, complex, messy humanity that, that you don't really see much in, in literary culture before him. Of course, that becomes something we see after him. You might say that's another one of his, um, you know, after effects, one of his legacies. But I think that he, at various moments, might be doing a number of those things that you mentioned. For example, I do think he kind of scratches his own itch and is interested in the potential of genre. What happens if you, if you tell the same sort of story in the upper class or the lower class, right? Uh, this this kind of courtly romance, courtly behavior. And I think he's very interested in the potential that he sets up in the camera tells for this, for this admixture of genres to be experimented with. I see that. Um, there certainly is a crit- an element of critique of society at certain moments, but very often you find what's really conflicting evidence it's this is like this ongoing debate with the wife of bath is she kind of our proto-feminist sort of before feminism we had the wife of bath this voice of women who we didn't have before or is she actually the embodiment of all those anti-feminist misogynist satires of the middle ages and again the answer is sort of yeah she's both of those things how could how could that be right they're opposites but he somehow pulls it off or at the very least, makes it unclear enough that that we're still debating about it years later. Okay. Rick, hey Tim, uh, you're uh, at a well-known university, and you're faced with teaching Chaucer. How do you teach Chaucer? That this is a 600-plus-year-old body of of literature. How do you teach this to modern students? Among all the things I teach, I think Chaucer is the easiest. It's not easy, but I think it's the easiest and that's because often i feel like i'm in a sort of missionary role where i'm kind of you know evangelizing old literature to to young generations and saying give this stuff a chance work through all the things that it asks of you that are difficult you know it's this it's asking you to have sustained attention 
it's a, it's a form of the language you're not familiar with. It assumes you have all this classical and biblical backgrounds you probably don't. And I find that job is easiest with Chaucer because he gives so much for the reader to grab onto. He um, one one thing he does is he often gives sort of at the at the level of the surface of the text, the narrative thread is pretty clear. And then he has a lot of humor. And so students really appreciate Chaucer. And that is something that I don't necessarily get with all medieval poetry, for sure. And so I'll start by saying Chaucer helps me out a lot relative to everything else I have to teach. However, there's still some, some, some hurdles to overcome. One of those is that I tend to teach it in the original Middle English, and that is... Ouch, ouch. Yeah, yeah. uh, I've made a lot of people say ouch over the years. And so we have to really slow down and talk about the language and work our way through the language, understand the differences. I think you can probably become competent at Middle English enough to reach Chaucer uh, pretty quickly, you know, in, in a matter of a few weeks or a month or so. And so so that's one thing we do. We address it at the linguistic level. And I also do some work filling in cultural background that students will need to understand a text. So, for example, the, you know, the Miller's Tale, which is the second tale I mentioned a moment ago, is a fablio. We have to talk about that. What's a fablio? Well, it's this French genre Chaucer imported that deals with trickery, cunning, deceit, um, sexual misconduct, all this kind of stuff. And so we talk about genre. What's, what's the world Chaucer's writing in? How's he, how's he deal with this genre? Um, and then we talk about contemporary life. We historicize it. So, for example, there are all these stereotypes about Millers at, at the time. They're, they're notorious cheats. Everyone knows they run monopolies and you have to get your grain done by your local miller and he's always cheating on the scales and so forth. So, so I kind of fill in the, the things I'll need to know to understand the text and a bit of the literary world that Chaucer's writing in, a bit of the language. And then that equips them enough that Chaucer kind of does the, the rest in terms of attracting them, I believe. How do your students react to, I mean, generally, how do your students react to this curriculum? Well, with Chaucer, I get the best reaction compared to everything that we're reading. They, they really like him. They find his sense of humor refreshing. And <clears throat> I think they gravitate towards the, the sort of narrative energy of a work like the Canterbury Tales and the, the anthology format of it. If I teach a longer format poem like Trust and Crusade, I usually only do that in a graduate seminar or an upper-level English major seminar. And there it's, it's a bit more of an uphill battle getting them to, <laughs> to really understand it and, and to, to love it, right? That's what I'm trying to get them to do. So generally it goes quite well at the undergraduate level if I'm teaching Canterbury Tales, though. Um, so you mentioned a couple of things there that, that you know, apply to, to what I've done in uh, literature classes. Um, most of my time spent in literature classes was as a historian providing that historical context um, so that they can make sense of whether, of, you know, whoever you're talking about. Um, and then also you know, working with the language. How do you, you know, how does the language work and trying to get them to understand that, that you can get past that. Um, fairly quickly. Uh, 
my so my my question really is as you're doing those things um you're obviously teaching on a collegiate level um one of the things that is is the most frustrating to me at the high school level is that we no longer get anything in completion um even even chaucer were you know the the textbooks now have bits of the miller's tale bits of um the uh, the knight's tale and so forth and and so you know what would you tell high school teachers or high school students about the situation of not being able to get the complete work just getting a little snippet of it and and how do you make that into something uh better um particularly when you may not have access to uh, the original texts, you know, or, or even translated texts, um, you know, that are, that are easy to get a hold of. Well, with Chaucer, at least, uh, you know, the, the whole text is, it's, it's easily discoverable online. Um, there's a, there's Harvard university has an inter interlinear Chaucer that, that I direct students to who are struggling with middle English, where, um, you have Chaucer's corpus of poetry with, modern translation interlined in between. So there's a lot of sources online that are free that you could point your students to that would help with that. But I, I know what you mean about that, that sort of anthologizing and, and, and the cutting, you know, the, I mean, really my response is what, what you need to do is read a sizable chunk. Uh, at the very least, if I'm doing a survey, I will usually do, you know, um, the, General Prologue, Knight's Tale, Miller's Tale, because those all go in sequence, and then maybe one other tale, Life of Bess, Prologue and Tale, or something like that. I think something that size gives them enough of a of a look into it. Um, frankly, to me, it's a bad idea to just give little little slices out of these tales. Um, if if that's all that you're allowed to do, I know sometimes high school teachers find themselves constrained by. Uh, curriculums or, you know, policies for the state or school in which they teach, then I think you just make the best of that and then drill into really close reading. Let's look at this at the level of individual words, individual lines, and think about it that way, right? And so use that kind of as a model for larger reading. Rick? Tim, uh, in the introduction, you talked about the various roles that Chaucer took part in in his life, uh, diplomat, uh, military, et cetera, et cetera. It would seem that uh, his experience, he was rubbing shoulders with the entire spectrum of society in England. And, and I, I wonder in your mind, did that give him uh, inspiration as a source for what he was writing? I think so. Um, again, with the Canterbury Tales, I think that's almost certainly the case. You know, it's at least the very least we're tempted to we're tempted to see that in his biography. And that's because something that really stands out about the Canterbury Tales is this feeling of a lived in world of these individuals who are in some way, they seem so human, right? They seem to really be in, in many cases, kind of individual flawed, complex people. And that is something you don't see a lot prior to Chaucer in, in the same way. And so I think that, you know, you're then asking, well, why Chaucer? Why is it the Canterbury Tales, why his works do we see this kind of very 
busy, complex world of people who are coming from every level of society. And I think the, the thing in his biography that suggests that is his own diversity of experience, right? If you've been a soldier, a prisoner, um, you know, a member of parliament, uh, overseeing construction projects, overseeing ports, you know, uh, growing up in a middle-class family that, that, that uh, bought and sold wine, that you probably interact with all sorts of different people in those, in that type of position. And so that, that, that has to, I think, inform his, his writing as it does any writer today. If you think about, you know, lived experiences, what people draw from. So I certainly think he, he made use of that. And also it's just that refreshing sense of humor that he has and, and sense of, curiosity about the world and about human beings that you're tempted to see that, you know, Chaucer as a person in the everyday world as an observer. Of course, we can't really know, but his, his writing makes us think the other way, too. Well, he must have been a sort of endlessly curious and person and a keen observer of humanity in these, in these positions. Tim, it, it occurs to me, um, writers, particularly preeminent writers, have a tendency to have interesting life cycles. Uh, some of them write white hot. They, you know, in 10 years, they just crank out tons and tons of stuff that's amazing, and then they sort of disappear. Um, or you have authors, people will probably yell and scream for me to use this, like Stephen King, who's been chugging along for 50 years, turning out bestsellers and... Um, has, seems to have, you know, is in his 70s and seems to have no end at sight. Um, so I'm interested, is Chaucer a person who's writing kind of consistently over time, or does he tend to concentrate in a particular chunks, and is there a reason going for that in terms of his life or time or what he's doing? I think so, yeah. There, so he has a few a few short poems in his, you know, early career when he's still young. And uh, poems like the Book of the Duchess, for example, in the 1370s, he seems particularly busy professionally. And then he produces his greatest works quite quite late in life. You know, he seems to have done Troyes and Crusade, which some people think that's his greatest poem because it's it's so uh, it's so poetically rich and complex and and finished it's a very polished finished work he seems to have this surge of productivity later in life where it looks like probably his his duties had eased up considerably his um his civil service career tim it's our custom to give the guest the last word so why do you think knowing about Chaucer and his importance to English literature is relevant in today's world? There are a lot of reasons it's relevant, and I, I, it's funny. That's the I know that's the the sort of title of your program, and um, always always I'm a little resistant to to questions like that. Um, but I think in 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 the case of Chaucer, there's a lot of good reasons that we could come up with. One thing is, you know, I mentioned earlier, this is a work, one of his works at least has been in print for, well, since printing in English was a thing, right? It's never gone out of print. And it's been a staple of um, 
other writers to turn back to of education now for for 600 years. So I would say um, you might you might look at that and say not only why is he relevant to us, but what has made him so relevant for for six centuries? Why is it that not just us, but so many people can return to him and find a new something in there? And I think those of us who read Chaucer repeatedly over a period of decades realize at different seasons of your own life or um, different moments in your life, when you return to Chaucer, you always find something new. It seems endlessly productive and rewarding. So I would look for the thing in Chaucer that's evergreen, right? Not, not the thing that you can specifically point to. You can, if you want, go and say, well, he lived in this tremendously complex and difficult age. We had several ways of the bubonic plague. We had the Hundred Years' War going on, major social upheaval, uh, you know, class problems with things like the Peasants' Revolt in 1381. And he was right there in the thick of all of that. It was, it was uh, things were so bad during those times that the, the people were convinced they were living at the end of time. So in our own kind of complex world, complex moments, uh, pandemics and things like that. You can look and see in Chaucer things that, that are parallel, but I would look and say, what is it that's kept people all around the world? Because he really has been translated in so many languages and there's a very dynamic global response to Chaucer even. What keeps them coming back? So beyond myself, beyond my own, um, my own time period or interest, what is it that 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 last about this person and i really do think it's it's the kind of depth and complexity of his art that's timeless but also the this kind of touch him being so in touch with humanity and with language what language can do what language is capable of and what it's not capable of and i think those are those are eternal sorts of questions that that are richly rewarding All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 544th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And our theme song is for the show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Timothy Stinson, Associate Professor of English and University Faculty Scholar at North Carolina State University. We've been talking about teaching Chaucer. Our history buff today was Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Pasutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, 
peace, rate, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Thank you.